Hey guys, welcome to episode 19 of the Grad Life Podcast. This is the first episode that has been done overseas. So we're talking to Georgie Herb, who was the girl who brought me to Australia with Macquarie Bank. She was my first manager there, or my only manager there. And she has since left Macquarie Bank and is now the head of energy sales and origination at Epoch Capital, which is a hedge fund in Sydney. Georgie, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you, pleasure to be here. A couple of things you want to chat to uh, today. So obviously your, your experience in university, experience banking, um, experience managing me. Don't give away any details there. Uh, save your anecdotes. <laughs> and um, then a point of passion for you, which is, which is equal pay. And I think um, a lot of our audience, and me as well, um, could do with some education from you on that topic and would love to hear your opinion. So... Um, hopefully we'll have time to get into all of that. But first, we'll start off with the with the university days. So I actually have I've, I've never really gotten to ask you any of these questions. What did you do in university? Uh, so I did a bachelor of commerce at Sydney University, which is a three year degree, and I majored in finance and management. I actually started out thinking I would be an accountant. Uh, I quite liked my accountancy subjects, which is unusual, I think. Um, But as I kind of got into doing, and I actually did an internship uh, in my first summer at an accounting firm um, and and really did quite enjoy that. Uh, But once I started to get into the finance subjects, um, which were kind of core subjects in my second year, I sort of decided that finance was was much more interesting for me and something that I was um, uh, reasonably passionate about. Um, so then I did uh, an internship in my second summer, so my penultimate summer with Macquarie, um, and that's sort of how I got my foot in the door there, right. basically having pretty much no idea what I was getting myself into. Um, my selection of, uh, of career came down to, I think I want to be an investment banker uh, because, you know, we'd had, we'd had investment banks come to the uni and talk to us. Um, but, uh, I really, I knew that they worked long hours, standard investment bankers, and that was what I didn't really want to do. Uh, and so I looked, um, at the Macquarie website for the internships and looked at some of the different, different trading groups, uh, not just investment banking. And that's how I came across commodities essentially. And commodities looked more interesting to you than the other areas. Or you um, just kind of moved in there? I'm not sure that it looked more interesting. It just, it it didn't have the long hours because it was linked to markets. Uh, it did look interesting in, in the fact um, that it was uh, trading markets and, and linked to different price movements. And sort of while I was at uni, I had interest in um, share trading and things like that. So anything that was markets related was interesting to me. Um, but at that early stage, I didn't really know... I didn't know the difference between sales and trading. I didn't really know that sales as a, as a role existed. I thought, you know, everything was about trading the markets. Yeah, it actually is um, quite strange that from the outside that investment banks have um, sales teams. There's a couple of kind of things that I think um, students listening would be interested in differentiating between there. And we might as well stick first with uh, commodities teams versus other areas of the bank and the idea that hours are shorter and you're market facing. Um, from your experience, and, and you obviously have 
plenty of experience in S&T, but you have worked with people in, in other areas of the bank. How would you describe on a high level the difference in, in, in what those places are like to work in? So S&T versus um, M&A teams or asset financing or whatever it might be. Mm-hmm. So when I was at uni and looking at this, um, my perception of it was quite different. As I said, I you know I didn't want to be in an M and A team as a as a um, traditional investment banker because I'd heard stories of hundred hour weeks and things like that. Um, assuming that something is linked to a market doesn't necessarily mean the hours are shorter. I started out um, on uh, on the oil desk as it was at the time, and and that's a twenty four hour market from. You know, Monday morning to Saturday morning Sydney time because the market basically doesn't close. Um, it is not necessarily that extreme because we had teams obviously in London and New York to take over, mm. uh, but we were far more um, far more tied to what was happening day to day in the market as opposed to an M and A team which basically has a deadline to you know assess a company for a takeover or something like that. And they basically sit at their desk until it's done, which could be a whole week with a you know a half an hour nap every night. Yeah, it's crazy. And from what I hear, I certainly you know I, I haven't worked in teams like that, but you know we've all heard the horror stories. Yeah, not nice. Um, I'm just thinking worth people knowing is I, I was struck when I went for my um, quick internship in Macquarie in Singapore that some teams exist there where the people working would work between three and twelve. And they'd be covering yes. covering hours in a different country. So, to any yes. uh, listeners thinking of getting into a foreign exchange trading or energy trading or equities trading role, anything market facing, there are actually jobs that exist where you work bizarre hours in one place to cover the market in another place. Um, and if yeah, that... that's right. And and every every company does it differently. For example, Macquarie had. Um, their FX and futures trading was done 24 hours out of either Sydney or Singapore, um, whereas on the oil desk we had a Sydney team, a Singapore team, a London team, and a Houston and or New York team, depending on uh, you know when we were talking about throughout my time there. Yeah, um, and another differentiation I was interested in hearing you talk about was the idea of finance versus accounting, and in making that decision. Could you describe the difference in what each of them did for you? So some people on a high level would look at finance accounting and they'll almost put them in a similar bracket because they're dealing with uh, numbers and, and, and books and all that sort of stuff. But they actually are extremely different. What was it about yeah, finance right. that did more for you than accounting? Um, well, I think accounting is really looking back at what happened um, and and allocating different transactions to different um, accounts, essentially, um, looking at what has happened over the last month or the last 12 months in preparing financial accounts so that you can see the, the health of the company. And so it's a very important thing to have, but really you are looking at transactions that are, have occurred. I used cash to buy this factory. You know, how do we account for that, essentially? Mm. Whereas finance is much more, and it's, it's, it is very broad, but the way I sort of think about it is, it's a way to assess financial risks and manage those financial risks. Things like derivatives um, uh, was obviously what I was quite focused on in terms of sales and trading, but also things like how do you value a company uh, if you're going to buy it? So that's your M&A side of things. How do you value different assets? Can you lease them or buy them? All, all sorts of 
questions such as that are more finance questions yeah. um, than accounting questions. Yeah, and, and finance might even have a bit more room to be creative within um, as yes, well. Yes, I, I look at it much more, and this is not to say accountants don't solve problems, but they're problems of a different nature. Yeah. I look at my job uh, as why I like my job is I get to solve customers' problems, essentially. They'll, they'll, um, they'll have some sort of you know, business risk or need that needs to be dealt with, and I kind of look at that and come up with a way to fix that for them. And th- those are the interesting things that I do as opposed to, you know, buying and selling at five cents difference. That's, that's, uh, that's, that's the bread and butter, but the interesting things are problem solving. Yeah. And finance is it's a it, people might look at finance with one color. There are so many different areas to finance and so many different ways in which one can be creative um, within finance. So, like I've even um, just out of interest been reading about private equity and that sort of stuff recently, and reading about Michael Milken creating um, high yield bonds or junk bonds in the fifties, and then. Um, who's that guy? Henry Kravis, basically creating mm. leveraged buyouts, um, and that became yeah. an enormous industry. And then uh, everyone involved in, unfortunately, the 2008 crash, while it turned out terribly, yeah. they were quite creative in looking at credit There's default swaps. There's a lot swaps. of creativity. Yes. <laughs> yeah. I mean, look, a yeah. lot of these things can can go both ways, and and that was horribly managed. But there is creativity in 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 how they kind of came up with those instruments and turned it into an enormous industry. Absolutely. I think um, when when I was applying for internships at uni, I, I had no idea of, firstly, of the different types of finance. I mean, you do a few different finance subjects um, and certainly derivatives was one of the ones that most interested me. But I didn't really have a clue of what all the different aspects were. And there are so many different roles you can you can look at in finance. Yeah, for sure. And there's the same macro finance looking at markets, microfinance looking at companies and, and restructuring them and there's all sorts of things. Mm-hmm. So I'd, I'd absolutely encourage people to not look at finance as being uh, one-dimensional in any way or grey in any way. It's, it, there's so many dimensions and it's actually quite uh, colourful or, or um, conducive mm. to creativity and very stimulating. So um, definitely worth people looking into that and not kind of writing it off. Mm, now you left uni. You went straight into Macquarie, right? Yeah, I started at Macquarie before I left uni. So I did my internship, uh, which was I think um, ten weeks over summer, uh, and I was offered um, actually an interesting point. I was considering doing an honours year, so a fourth year of uni, um, and I was offered a grad job at Macquarie uh, at the end for the end of my third year. So I had this decision to make. Do I take a job in the real world, or do I uh, do I do this honors year? And um, it just so happened that, with hindsight, it was an excellent decision to take the job. I mean, my reasoning was take real world experience. You don't get offered a job all the time. You know, an honors course is not going to get me a better job than this because I was, you know, happy there and enjoying it. But also, uh, it was two thousand and nine, so uh, the rest of my uh, cohort who did honours um, honours degrees came out uh, just as the GFC was happening um, oh and found it quite a bit more difficult uh, in getting in getting jobs immediately after that had happened. So my general advice, and obviously it's 
general and um, not specific to anyone's circumstances, do you like my disclaimer there, uh, is real-world experiences, particularly if you find a job that you do enjoy with people that you like who are uh, the job that is challenging you. Yeah. And honours you can wait. You can always go back and do a master's if you'd like to Mm. in uni. Um, Yeah. I think um, when if there's anyone thinking about looking at that decision or having to make that decision, don't just look at the learning, the job-related learning that will happen. A large part of the development in your first couple of years of working is the personal development that comes with the responsibility and having to um, manage your own work, <coughs> seeing the working world in a, in a different light. Exactly. Learning how to work is is by far the bigger component as opposed to learning how to price a call option. <laughs> because exactly. basically you come out of uni and you know, you, you've been guided by teachers. And I remember sitting um, with my, I guess, cohort of, um, of interns and, you know, we got to the end of our 10 weeks and we're all sitting there saying, we'd really like some more feedback on how we've done. We're so used to being assessed, but you don't, necessarily get that constant feedback in the work environment no. you have to um, either seek it out or wait for your review depending on your manager's style but mm. we were expecting the HR person organizing this internship to tell us how we'd all done and to give us feedback and it doesn't work quite yeah simply. it doesn't happen like that I remember the thing that freaked me out the most was that there was no semesters when I started and I was thinking god <laughs> you, it's just you this you definitely don't get four weeks off at yeah. every semester I was just thinking god it's just this then like I'll just do this and then eventually I die like, every just... week for the rest of my life yeah <laughs> crazy um, so kind of you know not necessarily me... not necessarily and as it turned out it wasn't the case at all um <laughs> <laughs> um, but you know just being met even with those ideas and those fears is, is, is um, it, it, it leads to growth and that sort of stuff as well so um, well worth people kind of looking at the real world while at college or while at uni um, and definitely then as soon as they leave or if they can manage both um, that would be ideal yeah I, I, I can't recommend internships enough if you have the opportunity to take an internship um, as a not just a trial for the company to test you out, but to see if you like that type of job. I had I had friends at uni who did um, investment banking internships and realised they didn't want to do that anymore. I mean, they thought the same as me that that's what they wanted, uh, and they realised actually I, I will, you know, I'll go insane or I'll die from working so many hours. Mm. Um, and it's a good way to test: is this something that I can see myself doing? Yeah, and it takes courage to do that as well. Um, it takes Absolutely, courage to, to not follow the path that you had set out for yourself or yeah. to think that you had set out for yourself. I don't need to tell you that. Or that, yeah, or that everyone else is, um, is kind of telling you is best for you. Um, I've kind of broken off that twice or three times now <laughs> and mm, just going absolutely. against every and wave it, of advice. It, it takes courage. <laughs> yeah, and it, it, it isn't easy to do, but um, so far each one has led on to a better... Path. So I, I was offered an accounting job in Dublin after my internship and I said no and everyone said I was an idiot and then I got the Macquarie job in Australia which was just the dream um, and then I left Macquarie and everyone said I was an idiot <laughs> and um, I went to Google and I loved there and I found very much a, a kind of cultural fit there and that's where I discovered that I had this, this public speaking thing going on and then I set up the events business and I left Google and everyone thought I was an idiot <laughs> and um, then but, I, you know, all I can say is you're, you're, I think, 
you're far more courageous than most people have been, but also I'd say a fair a fair bit happier than people who've stuck out a job that doesn't fit them. Yeah, true. That's definitely true. Um, the happiness, and I'm not. I can't comment on the courageous bit, but um, yeah, I, I I highly encourage people to if they see something on the other side. Um, of, a, of a wall that they have to break through just go for it and, and usually if your gut's telling you go for it then um, there will be reward on the other side um, yeah. can we narrow in on, on the S&T role then a little bit um, and I have, I have a little bit of input here but you obviously have um, a lot of experience in it sales and trading how does it work so obviously we as um, you've you got prop trading and proprietary trading which is where the traders use the bank's money to make more money and then uh, client-facing trading as well. So could we elaborate a little bit on, on those two and the role of A, a trader, and B, uh, more so maybe the salesperson within the trading team? Sure. So on the, <coughs> on the trading side, as you say, um, proprietary traders use the company's money. So it can be banks. I now work for um, a, a private trading company. It could be a, a large hedge fund, any one of those types of Entities they use uh, that company's money to take um, positions in the market. So essentially, buy or sell some form of some form of commodity, uh, interest rate, FX, um, equities, all sorts of things. And and that can be from very simple buy and sell to very complex, yeah. all sorts of different uh, options, derivatives, portfolios of derivatives. Um, algorithmic trading, all sorts of things like that. So it's, it's pretty broad. Um, the customer side of trading is, is basically where, you know, if the, if the company has customers, um, they can come to, to the company and say, could you please provide me a price to buy such and such, to buy an oil hedge like you know, what I was doing at Macquarie um, or uh, an electricity hedge, which is what I'm doing now. Um, those prices then are provided to the customer um, to manage their price risk. And essentially what you're doing is transferring risk between one entity and another. Um, and that that works for people, for both counterparties. So you have the customer who doesn't want that price risk and the trading company who does want that price risk or can find a cheaper way to offset that price risk. Um, and, and the risk is, is sort of transferred between the two um, through a financially settled derivative. I don't know if we want to talk... In well, much detail? no, I think that's a good amount of detail. But if we go, if we look at it maybe on a really high level where you've got an airline, say the biggest airline in Australia, Qantas, and, um, or the biggest airline in Ireland or England, uh, Aer Lingus, Ryanair, whatever it is, they run, let's just say for simplicity, 100 planes and each of those, I don't know these figures at all, but each of those planes goes through, um, let's just say a million barrels of fuel oil, jet fuel, um, a year. Mm-hmm. And we'll just call that, uh, oil for simplicity not jet fuel oil sure. so they say god i'm gonna have to buy the same january god i'm gonna have to buy um a million barrels of oil for um for this year that's a lot of oil and the price of oil last year went between 50 to 80 to 20 to 60 to 70 so i don't know how much this is going to cost me and i can't manage my cash um if if i just buy it at the spot wherever it is you know exactly so then they go to a, a bank or a trading house and they say, guys, I have this problem. I can't manage my cash if I trade at the market. What does the bank then say and do for them? So basically, as you say, they, they have the choice between buying their fuel every day when their planes fill up at the price 
think of filling up your car at the petrol station at, yeah. at the pump price. They can buy that every day, and that gives them zero certainty uh, at the beginning of the year as to what their profit margins might be. If that price doubles or triples, they can't put up their seat prices by double or triple. Um, they have to either wear that margin or try and pass it on somehow and, and, and risk losing customers. So what they'll do is they'll take a, an estimate, firstly, of what their customer numbers are um, to seat sales, essentially, so that they can understand how much fuel they, they will need to burn. If it's a million barrels in a year, they would come to a bank or a trading house to say, can you provide me a hedge for this? And they will specify how much they want to buy over what period. So, you know, they might say um, 100,000 barrels per month is what we consume. Can you please give us a fixed price, essentially? So then you have a derivative, uh, which is purely a financially settled um, set of cash flows, essentially, an agreement between two parties to say, I will pay you this amount, so a fixed amount, and you will pay me a floating amount, which is essentially a version of the pump price they would have to pay otherwise. So the airline says, I'd like to know a fixed price, and, you know, say that's $60 a barrel, uh, they will pay the bank $60 a barrel for every barrel that they have hedged, and the bank will pay them the floating price, so the daily settlement price. They'll take an average over the month. And they'll essentially net off the two payments. So what, what gets paid is the difference between the two. And that means basically they, because the bank is paying the airline the floating price and the airline still, when it fills up its planes at the pump, has to pay the pump price. But basically what it's doing is offsetting the floating price with the bank as opposed to its fuel supplier. Mm. <clears throat> Does that make sense? Yeah, and and by doing that, they 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 manage their risk and enable themselves to kind of make their projections and um, have exactly a... they can lock in their profit margins. They have far more forecastability and certainty. They they won't hedge every single barrel that they use. They'll they'll decide a reasonable percentage, uh, and it gives them future certainty. Yeah. On those cash outflows. And when a trader is at his or her desk all day they're just completely on because anything crazy can happen on the market at any second they're just they're, they're just so alert and on and focused on this one thing so they can't be that's the exactly. ones talking to the airline and kind of sorting all that stuff out and so banks hire that's exactly right so the trader basically is at the screen all day so whenever you know during the hours that the market is open someone needs to be there in case things uh, in case things move. Yeah. Um, so they tend to, we don't let traders talk to customers is what we say <laughs> because they are, uh, they're, they're very focused on what it is they do, they're doing. So they tend to not necessarily pick up the phone when it rings. They will be speaking to, either speaking to brokers um, or, or looking at screen trading prices. Yeah. And they really can't, can't take their focus away from that. Um what they will do that's not just looking at the screens is lots of data analysis, um, lots of information analysis, essentially. So in, in the oil market, as we've been talking about, um, what's happening with oil supply in the Middle East or what's happening with global demand because people are driving more or driving less or mm. those sorts of things. And those are the things that make the market move. So... Um, 
those types of uh, different types of analysis, also lots of number crunching generally. It's it's a fairly numbers-heavy role, trading, um, and, and those are the sorts of things that traders will look at. Yeah, and then the... Uh, because they can't talk to customers, the banks have to hire these salespeople to kind of stand between the bank and the customer and deal with, say, the airline who has the problem. Talk to the airline and say, hey, what's your problem? What are the numbers? Like, how many barrels do you need here? How can we work it for you? And build a relationship. Exactly. A lot of it is relationship management, right? Exactly, and that's what I do. So on the sales side of things, sales and origination is kind of how I would uh, group those two together. Um, it's it's relationship customer focused it is um, not just giving the customer a price but it is understanding what their risks are how best to uh, manage them there are all sorts of um, different things that you need to put in place in terms of legal documents uh, understanding who and what the client who the client is who owns them what they do Um, you know increasingly there are regulatory risks in the world that we need to kind of make sure we tick off so there's lots of different components that need to happen before you can do enter into a deal with with a customer yeah and that's what the what the salesperson does so on the trading side the risk that the traders take is market risk on the sales side the risk is counterparty credit risk the risk that the customer defaults on the transaction and doesn't pay you what you're expected to be paid. yeah um i feel I, i'm tempted to ask you if that's ever happened to you but i'm wondering what you're what you're able to talk about it hasn't. <laughs> it hasn't, right, okay. No, no, it hasn't. Um, it's it, it can happen, and I think, you know, there, there are ways to mitigate it, which is fully understanding who the counterparty is, making sure your um, deal sizes are appropriate to them. Yeah, and a bank will work with those limits. So a bank has this process called KYC, know your customer, and they kind of go into depth. Hey, I want to trade with markairlines.com. And they say, okay, I need to know who the hell Mark Airlines is. And they go look at all my financials, get all this information from me and say, okay, I'm only willing to deal with, or they say, Georgie, you're only allowed to work with Mark Airlines for a maximum limit of a million dollars a year. And so they price customers that way. Yes, exactly right. So my job entails all of those things now because I don't work in a bank anymore. I work in a a smaller trading company um, and I have to make sure I understand who that customer is, uh, what their needs are, what the risks are for both them and for us. And I do spend a lot of my time educating the customer as to what the, um, what the transactions are that we're proposing because they're not always straightforward. Um, We have the expertise in derivatives, whereas customers are busy running their business essentially um, which is sort of why there is a need for uh, for these products. And it does mean, as you say, a lot of time spent building relationships. So I go to lots of meetings. I travel a lot. I go out for lunch a lot. Yeah, lots of lunches, <laughs> um, Georgie. It sounds, <laughs> it sounds glamorous, but it's not always glamorous. Yeah. Um, but it is all about relationships to me. Yeah. Um, and, yeah, I remember I used to be always so jealous of you and going to all the lunches and dinners and traveling and all that sort of stuff. But um, for everyone, it is obviously still fun. You do have relationships with these people. It's nice to see them, etc. But at the end of the day, it is still a work thing. And when you, um, you know, if you move into, say, late 20s or whatever, and you have your family or you have a person at home and that sort of thing, and you have a lot of these functions and events to go to, um, it isn't quite as enticing as it might appear to be 
when you're a student and no, you, it's, you crave free food. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. It's it's uh, it's it's fun the first time and the second time and the third time it wears a little bit thin. Yeah, so yeah. I mean it's it's what I do and I love to do it. Um, but I find sort of on a on a more personal note how I manage uh, being switched on and interacting with customers all the time. As you can tell, I like to talk, as mm. I know you do. <laughs> it, I find when I've had a week of lots of meetings or lots of lunches and dinners and travel, I just need to come home and kind of lock myself in a quiet space. And, yeah. And, and, and I guess rebuild kind of those energy levels before I can do it again. I certainly – I do hit a wall uh, at some point. Yeah. I remember it was actually – it was in Google that we were um, – talking about that because we're all in this um either account management or sales role and all like extroverts and really kind of bubbly outgoing people and stuff and then we talk oh what do you got what do you go to last night and everyone always had really boring nights most of the time mm. and we kind well, of drew I, the line i think you'd be surprised yeah i think you'd be surprised that i would classify classify myself as an introvert not an extrovert yeah um that's I think, you know, probably a combination of both, but I certainly do get to my point where I just need to not see any people and I need to, you know, have a quiet glass of wine and read a book and, and just... Yeah, well, I, I have a you know, large re, part of that as well. build that energy. I have a huge part of that as well. Um, but I remember we were saying that, God, because our jobs are so social, we need to be unsocial and recharge in the evenings. I think, I think so, and I think very different if, you know, you work from home every day and you don't talk to people yeah. uh, as much. I think I would find that difficult in a different sense. I, I would crave the interaction with people. Yeah, well, that's, that's what I'm in now. And, yes, you do crave the interaction very much. <laughs> um, so... Anyone looking at this or listening to this now and they think this would be actually a really cool job and they think they'd be suited to it, etc. Uh, the good news is there are jobs there. The bad news is a lot of banks have actually um, stopped working in commodities or at least, sorry, they did do that um, in around the time that I started working there, so uh, 14, 15. But ha what banks are active within the commodity space now? Mm, yep me on the spot a little bit. Uh, oh, so are, you, depends, are you not able to say? I mean, the, all of, I would say, um, you know, that all the big global uh, investment banks do have commodities desks uh, of of some description, some some bigger than others. Yeah, okay. Um, but in terms of, uh, I, I would say it is the, the major international um, investment banks who, who are active yeah. rather than necessarily... Uh, the domestic banks, but some of them, some of them do have different niches. Uh, so I don't think that's a very helpful answer for you. No, no. It, it, well, do you know what? It makes sense. It, um, I think the Sydney guys would know who uh, who their major banks are, and then the Irish yeah. guys. Uh, it basically says if you want to do this, you need to be in London. Um, all the London, all the, the big banks in London um, would be doing this, yeah. and not necessarily um, the Irish ones. Actually, I actually, I actually don't know if the Irish ones do, but. Um, London definitely would. Mm. So you did it within a bank, and you did it there for how long? For eight or nine years? Ten years. Ten years. Almost ten years. Nine and a half years. Oh, you didn't stay for the the ten year prize or whatever that is. <laughs> that I didn't. Even... My my opportunity was too enticing. Right. So, okay. Fair uh, enough. Got to the point where it it sort of made sense. Yeah. Um, to 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 move on, and I I learned lots and lots of my time at Macquarie and it was um I mean it's it sort of taught me everything obviously so I was an intern and, and uh stuck around there for almost 10 years 
Um, and then this opportunity came up to basically uh, start a sales desk uh, with with Epoch, which is a trading firm, as we've said, um, and work with uh, electricity traders who I've worked with before uh, and set up a sales desk so that we could talk to customers. Um, so they were previously only trading futures, which is on the screens, as you say. Um, we didn't. Uh, the company at the time didn't have the capabilities you need to licenses in Australia to, to deal with customers. And so it was my job to come in and get that license, but also set everything up from scratch. The company had never had um, had never had customers before, so we had to go through um, everything from having a credit checking and KYC process put in place to having someone who can settle transactions at the end of the day for us to review legal documents, all those sorts of things. So, so a very entrepreneurial pretty, experience. Yeah, it was a pretty um, a pretty interesting and challenging experience for me. I think I was sort of set up very well um, from my time at Macquarie, knowing you know knowing and having it worked closely with all the different departments who did those things. But then I had to kind of come and do that all by myself in yeah. this new job. Um, but it's been it's been fun and it's it's been a good challenge so far. We're up and running now, which is excellent, and we're kind of proving the concept of the business, which is a relief because it was sort of a bit of a, a risk for me to to make that move from, you know, a, a stable uh, a stable career at the bank, almost ten years there, to start something new uh, for myself. So. Yeah, no, I I, I think um, as you well know, I think it was a very cool um, and admirable move to make. One thing I'd like to do is kind of explore the cultures in these places and um, I'd like to preface it by just saying that a lot of people would think that, oh, you're going to work in a bank, it's going to be big and staid and slow and, you know, you'd be pigeonholed, etc. I actually found um, Macquarie to be quite the opposite because, sure, it's huge, there's lots and lots of, of, of teams and things going on there, but most of those teams are, you know, well, I can't say most, but some of those teams are very, quite small. And they do big things. So our team was about eight people dealing with, you know, Australian oil and um, and electricity and, and, and different things. So within the big bank, you have small teams doing big things, which means you have a lot of entrepreneurial freedom there. And if you see an opportunity, you just kind of go for it. Um, sure, there are clearances you need to get, like KYC or whatever it might be, that might be slower in a big bank than in a small place. But in terms of your, your ability to exercise on opportunities that you see, banks can actually be quite um, liberal or, or kind of let you go after them, really. Would you agree? Yeah, I think, <laughs> yeah, I think obviously, I can only speak uh, about my experience at, at Macquarie. Um, certainly, it was a very, uh, there was a very entrepreneurial spirit there, as you said. It was, if you can see an opportunity to make money, go for your life essentially not not run at it without any limits but you know these are the, these are the processes you need to go through to get that up and running yeah. but it is your idea and you can run with it uh, and you can push it through if you if you see an opportunity there um, I don't as I said I don't I don't really know about uh, other banks specifically but certainly um, investment banks who are successful at uh, all sorts of different things have gotten there somehow. Um, and usually it is because it's uh, they allow you those opportunities to to be creative, as you said earlier, and, mm. and uh, come up with ideas that work for for your business. Yeah, and and you obviously are the great example. You did that yourself. Um, with yes, 
with your project. Do you want to talk about it, or is it? Like, I'm so unsure about what you're able to talk about. Um, the um, we, the one with Luke. Uh, yeah, well, so that that's that's sort of basically how I've come to be in this uh, in this new job. Is that what you mean? Yeah, well, you basically More discovered <laughs> discovered slash played a role in creating a market that never existed before. Um, not so much, not so much, never existed, but just I think was is probably underserviced in some sense. In that um, the customers who we're sort of speaking to, it's a bit of a different niche to what what other people were doing. And I think what we've done is taken our company's strengths. Um, which are obviously very different to a bank, and there was, you know, quite a bit of adjustment for me to to figure out how things work in a much smaller place uh, where I kind of have to manage everything. But also, you know, we have a much smaller balance sheet, which means we can do things differently rather than, you know, tackle big long-term things such as a bank would do. Mm. Um, and really, have just 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 understood what what those strengths are for us and and how there's you know, how there are customers that we can serve in that That you can add value to, yeah. Um, yeah, exactly. And, and it goes back to the point I made earlier about a risk transfer. We have certain risk appetites ourselves that customers don't have uh, the appetite for or don't have necessarily the skill set in inside their companies because they're busy, you know, generating electricity or, or providing a retail service to their customers. And that transfer is valuable for both them and for us. Yeah. Something I want to ask about is your transition into managing, um, which I played a role in as well. <laughs> so you go, you know, as, as a lot of the, the audience here, just kind of building careers in their early 20s and really just, kind of, you know, focusing on themselves and even in a lot of cases having other people focus on them as well. Um, mm. And all of a sudden then they're given the responsibility to, A, do their own job and build in, grow in that, but B, focus on someone else at the same time and, and, and help them to grow and learn. How was that challenge for you? Well, my first uh, first management experience, as in me being a manager, um, didn't go so well. We had a grant, this is not you that I'm talking about, <laughs> for your audience's sake, um, as you well know, and that's that's the truth. Um, we, we had a grad on our desk who was extremely smart, but uh, just didn't didn't really fit um, in terms of uh, how do I put this? Uh, he, he had a certain level of arrogance, which I think, and entitlement, which meant that he didn't want to do the work. Essentially, is, is how I put that. Can I actually? Um, um, can Can I just say that, that I, I was told about him obviously um, a fair bit and, and the lesson I kind of got from it is, is quite a common thing and I think someone brought it up on the podcast before it's the idea that you land a really good job and you consider yourself to have won the game uh, to have completed yes. the journey and mm. you don't what you don't realize is that you you've only just kind of made it onto the pitch or, or onto the path of the journey and yeah, but yeah you basically you've been allowed to step to the starting line exactly you haven't done anything yet yeah so word of caution to any listeners by. Getting the best job yeah. in the world is is uh, you're invited up to the starting line. You haven't won the race. Yeah, and, and with <laughs> hindsight, you know, we, we kind of I would look at that and think, you know, you need someone who is hungry to be there, not entitled to be there. Yeah. Um, but what I what I also really <laughs> learned was I, I I gave up on that guy. He and I didn't get on. Uh, you know, he because of 
because of that, basically, and because mm. of all sorts of things. And he was difficult for actually everyone to manage. So this is, you know, this is not to bash this guy, but it was I. What I learned with hindsight is I gave up on him pretty much immediately because I just shut myself off and thought, you know, this is hopeless and there's nothing to be done here. Yeah. And so if I look back, did I really try and get the best out of him? Did I try all the different things that I could have? Probably not because I'd decided in my mind I can't work with this person. Now, that you're going to come across people all your life who you think you can't work with and you, you have to figure out a way. So, you know, it did, turns out it didn't didn't work out with him mm. he did he left us uh before you joined yeah um but you will always come across people you don't get along personally with or you disagree with their approach to things and you have to figure out a way to make that work and so that was probably probably one of my early lessons was don't don't shut someone off and don't give up um so quickly on a person just because you don't see eye to eye yeah I guess you're dealing probably with two things as a manager, attitude and aptitude. So Absolutely. do they want to do it and can they do it? And they're two very different things. And if they, Absolutely. Like the first thing I guess you kind of need is the attitude because um, if someone is going to teach you the aptitude, you need to have the attitude to hear it and listen to it and, and take it in. Exactly. Um, because I think when you start off as a grad, you, uni teaches you, proves that you know how to learn doesn't actually really teach you anything of value. Um, you you know, there will be some things that are, yeah. um, are useful to you, but most most of the things you need in your day-to-day are taught on the job. And if you don't show the willingness and the hunger to learn those things, you failed to begin with. You've, you've failed before you've started. Yeah. So if you were to give one piece of advice to someone who's just moving into uh, the management experience now, um, would it be that to kind of to, to not give up on them on them quickly? Yeah, I think so. And I mean, I don't I don't have a great deal of experience with uh, with managing people. I have managed people on and off, but I've mostly kind of run my own sort of business, which was just me. Yeah. But in terms of what I what I have learned, you know, the people subsequent to him, so as you, and then a couple of others, um, don't give up when. When, when I get frustrated, basically, don't give up when you get frustrated at managing someone. Um, think of other ways that you can try and try and approach it. Don't just don't just assume that they one they don't want to learn or two they can't learn. They're not smart enough. All those things. Maybe you're just explaining it differently. You know, explain it to me like I'm a six year old. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I think that's probably that's probably my uh, yeah. As I said, I'm no expert, but. Um, keep trying well you're a very good manager to me that's all i can say oh it's, it's <laughs> um, nice to hear well i think there was a, there was one other um point i was going to make in terms of it's always easier i mean you know you and i get on very well and did get on very well it's always easier when you're managing like-minded people and people that you you personally like and that you get on with but i do think you run the risk in hiring someone who just looks like yourself um, or sounds like yourself, behaves like yourself, thinks like yourself, that you you end up having people who just reflect your own ideas. And yeah. we'll talk about this a bit later on in terms of diversity. Yeah. Um, but, you know, just because someone, just because you don't get on personally with someone or disagree with their approach to things, maybe that's, maybe that's a good thing. 
you don't need to get on with them. I, I listened to something recently that was, you don't need to like someone, but you do need to trust them to work with them. Yes, true. And those are very different things. There's also a thing that I believe in, um, a man, uh, an idea that was actually given to me in relation to kind of internal, like personal stuff, but something that I think really directly transfers to the operation of a team, which is creative friction. And yeah. if you and I think very differently and uh, are working on something together, it, we could end up in, in uh, going to blows or we could... Uh, just one or just just keel over and let the other ideas or others idea flow through or the third option is that we land on this sweet spot where our ideas collide but you know work together and and we you know we have good debates etc and through our differences we come up with an optimal solution so yeah if you, you can you come up with with some answer that is better than either of them exactly yeah so if you can kind of strive for that sweet spot of creative friction you're probably onto a good thing um and yes let's move into uh, this idea of women in finance and well so talking about diversity the whole umbrella but i'm interested in hearing about women in finance and um finance is probably known to be a, an environment or an industry that is less women-friendly than others, and you were the only, let's see, nah, on a floor of 200, you were maybe one of about 10 women one on the of, floor? Uh, one of three in the front office, meaning client-facing. Yeah. And, um, yeah, the only, uh, until six months after I, six months before I left, I was the only woman in the, in our team, yeah, um, and uh, towards towards maybe in the last year or so, I think there were maybe four or five in in front of us roles, so trading or sales roles. Right. Okay. Um, Good to hear. But um, yeah, it's slowly, slowly improving. Um, I'm back to being the only woman in the front office um, right. in my new job. I'm I'm now not just in a uh, finance company, but essentially a tech trading company. So we we have a lot of um, high frequency and algorithmic trading in our business. So we're, we're kind of at that intersection of tech and finance. Yeah. Um, and I mean, this is, this is something that I'm passionate about because it, it is my experience in the world is, is managing my way through, uh, essentially a world that was created by and for men. Yeah. Um, that being finance, you know, in the, the, you look around lots of trading floors, and this is not true of, of all banks, I'm led to believe. Um, and I know people are trying to change this, and there's lots of uh, lots of you know women in finance type things, and I'm trying to change this personally as well as to, you know, how can we get more women applying for these roles at the grad level yeah. to begin with so that, so that when we get further down the track, there will be more senior women around to put into these roles. I don't think it's a case of... There just aren't any, you know, the women who are there aren't good enough to be getting into the senior roles. They're just not there. Yeah. So that's sort of the starting point. Yeah. So so what is the current status of women, uh, yeah, just in finance? I was going to say A in finance, B in, in the working world, but let's just say A in finance uh, for now. Current status. Well, I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't think I have a finance specific statistic, but in terms of global gender pay gaps, depends on, on which country you're in in the world, but. You know, it's it's anything from fifteen percent to twenty five percent, and then if you're looking at total remuneration, 
including bonuses, and you're seeing more and more of this in the UK at the moment with the mandatory reporting, you know, it's 120%, 150%. Yeah. And that's that's um, that's not like for like pay discrepancy. That's you know average women's pay versus average men's pay, and that's because if you look at the you know the CEOs and um, CFOs of the world currently, they're mostly men, and you know certainly in, in lots of tech companies and trading companies, the the people who are paid the most by far are well the people in the senior roles, and they are by and large men. Yeah. Um, and so that's that's kind of where that problem is coming from, really. So that idea, because I've been reading about the them, the UK mandatory reporting, and tr- truth be told, I actually thought that um, that gender pay gaps were measured like for like, but they're using this on average system, which is a reflection of, as you say, more men being at the top than women being at the top. Yeah, because I think that that's an issue as well. And I, I certainly, um, I think there's a number of measures that, that should be looked at. You know, like for like is obviously the very basic, most important. You know, if you've got two people doing the same job with the same qualifications at the same um, the same level, essentially yeah. their, 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 their output is the same. Yeah. They should be paid the same. And that's not always the case. No, but the, 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 that, we're talking about two separate issues. That needs to be issues. fixed step one. But in terms of the, the average, you know, average male versus average female pay, yeah, that the next big problem is where are the women at the top? They're yeah. There. And that's, that's um, a discrimination issue. So when you do, when you measure them differently, you're talking about different issues. When you measure like by like, you're talking about gender, you're talking about pay equality. When you measure on average, you're talking about discrimination. Um, yes, yes, I think that's one of the one of the reasons. I think absolutely discrimination is one of the reasons it doesn't happen. Um, but also, I think one of the reasons is women get fed up, and I certainly have felt this myself in a male-dominated, uh, high testosterone environment. It is tiring to be the only one who has the, st- the, the, the experience that you have in the world. And the only way that's going to change is people who are experiencing those things to speak up and, and tell people about their experiences, which is what I'm doing right now. Yeah. Um, and also to get more women on the floor, basically. If there are more women on the trading floor, by definition, it becomes less blokey. Teams interact differently if you've got if you've got gender balance and sure. you, know, you would have experienced when I was there, I, I have never been shy or quiet about raising these issues. And yeah. if someone says something subconsciously uh, discriminatory, you know, that is offensive to me that no one else would sort of bat an eyelid as, so, you know, <laughs> I remember uh, someone having said, said to one of the brokers, I traded that like a girl and I just kind of threw something at him and he looked at me and said, oh, yeah, I never thought that that's, yeah. I never would have thought that that's, that's a, the wrong thing to say, as if to say trading like a girl is bad. Well, yeah. here's a girl sitting right next to you. Are you saying that I'm less than you? Well, that's something that I want to um, kind of talk about just from my own experience. I, I, I learned a lot at Macquarie about finance, learned a lot about people, learned a lot about myself, learned a lot about work, whatever. I learned a lot about this issue from hearing you and just talking to you. And if you weren't there, I wouldn't have learned anything. Um, exactly. And exactly. So, uh, but so. I, I want to encourage uh, the guys listening to 
talk like so I learned in Macquarie during the day all that other stuff but I learned from you at night time having a, a glass of wine or a dinner or whatever just kind of talking about it and saying oh my god I didn't even see that I didn't even hear that and it turns out so here's my here's my um my kind of vision of it is and this might even uh, drive the gap even wider but women are seeing a different dimension to what men see that you actually see a different dimension happen in the workplace and yeah. it would be massive if men started to see that dimension. So I start, I'd never heard those comments before you told me about them. And then I started to hear them. And I'm like, oh, my God, this is real. And yeah. I think any young guys or, you know, at any age listening, tie yourself to um, a girl or a lady or a woman working in your workplace. And no, don't, don't, t- don't tie not, yourself. You know, please, like, that would be, <laughs> yeah, that would whatever. Be you know what I mean? Um, <laughs> you, like, you know, like, talk to them once a week, whatever. Can ask them absolutely ask ask what her experience is and this is you know this is all I can keep doing you know I've had so many uh so many instances of you know from the benign comments such as you've treated that like a girl to me being the expert in the room and you know the person on the other side of the desk talking to my male colleague sitting next to me who doesn't you know isn't the expert in the field um, you know, I'm much further down the track than that, you know, in terms of experiences that I won't talk about, but I can talk about the impact that they have had on me. Yeah. And if you want, like, very basically, it's the right thing to do, obviously, to, to fix these issues. But actually, there's a business case for it as well. There is absolutely, um, you know, it's detrimental to your company's productivity if you don't have a safe space for everyone, not just women, for all minorities and, yeah. you know, all staff generally. It's detrimental to your productivity, but also, as we were talking earlier, you get, if you have more women, you get diversity of thought and better decision-making outcomes. Yeah. Um, so there's a range of reasons to do it. But if you can ask ask your female colleagues about their experience, because I guarantee you can't, I mean, as you've just said, you can't see it unless you have experienced it because it's not how you experience the world. Um, it's the little things over 10 years that add up Yeah, uh, that I'm trying to change. Um, That's not to discourage women from applying to finance. I really want more. Um, and I think this is the point. As, as we talk about this and as we get more and more women, I guess, coming through the ranks from a, from kind of graduate level, these things will change because People can't get, I mean, if you already look at the, the progress we've made, people can't get away with saying the things they used to. And so, you know, it's just going to move progressively towards a more balanced workplace, which will then be kind of more inclusive for everyone. Yeah. I hope. Um, I want to talk to the, the guys listening in a couple of things. So, A, as I say, there is an extra dimension there. If you don't see it, it means you need to learn how to see it. And... As I say, talking to, not tying yourself to, talking to regularly um, a girl you work with who does see it and does experience it. And by the way, they experience it on a much deeper level than we might think. If we say, oh, that's just a passing comment, they can't take that personally. That might be one of a hundred things that you are missing. And all of those add up to to kind of uh, affect them on a deeper level. So there is a dimension. One good way of seeing it is talking to people. Another good way of seeing it is uh, doing what Georgie told me to do, which is read the book Lean In by uh, Sheryl Sandberg. That's a very powerful book. Um, yes. And just kind of gives you an introduction into, you know, how it actually is for women in the workplace and the things that happen that you don't, you, don't, you, you just don't notice them. Like, you really don't notice them. 
until you are really woken up to the issue. Um, and Absolutely. Then, I, I'd, I'd encourage both um, male and female grads to read that book. I'm, I'm, uh, I was going to say I made my husband read it. I asked him if he would read it so that, <laughs> you know, he, he could um, see some of these uh, some of these experiences laid out, you know, in a book that someone else has written. It's not just me. I think I think the key to everything you've just said is ask the questions of your female colleagues, but believe them. Believe the experiences that they tell you. Yeah. Don't doubt that. Um. So there's a fight going on. Like women are fighting for their voice and their rights within the workplace. And there's probably three outcomes that can happen in this fight. The worst outcome possible, I think, is that men start fighting back and it just becomes an all-out fight for it. That would not be good. I don't think that's going to happen. Um, second option is they simply don't get heard and uh, things just move on as they always have been. And that is absolutely a bad result as well. The best possible outcome is that men join in the fight and it becomes not about women versus men, but about women and men versus establishment. So the same way women and men have teamed up to fight things like um, unequal marriage rights or um, women in politics or whatever it might be, teaming up again to fight this establishment rather than fighting each other within it i think that's the optimal outcome and so this isn't a message to uh girls listening this is a message to everyone listening to join in this fight and play the little role that you can every day in reading Sheryl sandberg in making sure that you are not a part of the problem which a lot of us probably um are or have been until we have been educated on it um absolutely i i just i think you 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 can't, by definition, you can't know someone else's experience without them telling you because you haven't experienced it yourself. Yeah, exactly. And I, I, I'm happy to say that I was part of the problem um, until you kind of woke me up to it and I did all the kind of research on it and, and, and made a very deliberate effort. And I can say, and this is very true of, of almost every man who are part of, every man who is part of the problem, there's no malice in it. They don't mean to be part of the problem. They're not trying to... Um, suppressed they actually most of the time are doing it totally unconsciously without realizing the effect of what they're doing without realizing that they're even doing it and so absolutely we we have been brought up and i won't get you started on the patriarchy for now that's for another conversation (laughs) but we have we have we have all been raised in this environment uh that has taught us these things consciously and subconsciously you know the statement fight like a girl you fight like a girl or you play like a girl or whatever that is that is derogatory to whoever it's being said to but what's so bad about playing like a girl yeah you know there's all those things that we and and, you know i'm guilty of it uh, myself um in in all sorts of circumstances without even realizing it um so i think i think people need to just be conscious of it as the very first step it's not it's not you're not a horrible person if you say one of these things but try and think about it and you know I'm, I'm still learning in all sorts of in all sorts of ways as well well the, yeah like the, the, as I was saying like the by men in, in doing this men are not usually making the decision to do it and so it can be forgiven but in remaining ignorant they are making the decision mm. to remain ignorant and that cannot be forgiven 
So yeah. if, you, if, 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 a, if a guy out there is listening right now thinking, I'm innocent of this whole thing, unless you have educated yourself on it, you're not innocent because your decision to remain ignorant is part of the problem. And Absolutely. that's what we're looking to solve. Any other thoughts on that or anything you'd like? Like, I, I love hearing you say, girls, don't shy away from finance because of this. Join finance and help yeah, to, to be I a mean, big change within this. I, I, th- I, think, I think that's it. It's not, it's not to say that, you know, this is, a, this is a hostile, terrible place to work. I think, you know, probably it's already far better than it was when, when yeah. I started. And, um, you know, as you well know, I should clarify that the team I was in was, was very supportive uh, of me and I was never treated differently by the team that I was in. And, um, you know, they, they humoured me when I kind of gave them hell for saying things that they shouldn't necessarily say and um but i think it's certainly things are changing slowly and if we can kind of get more um more women in at the ground level essentially um that will help and you know just keep speaking up there's um, there's lots and lots more that we could talk about you know workplace flexibility for both men and women will be beneficial to women but we will be here for hours if we start yeah. talking about that. So well, I think the, the more people are talking about it, the more things will change. Yeah. Are there any um, initiatives out there that, that, that guys or girls can join that say, like, you know, if you were in, um, just starting out a career in finance or whatever, is there any initiatives or groups or whatever that people can join or look into? Uh, there are all sorts of things, and you'll have to obviously look into what's relevant for your area, but there yeah. are, you know, women in finance type groups. There um there's in australia there's one called business chicks there's another called the remarkable woman uh any of any of those um i guess communities that you can get yourself involved in um it's nice to be able to talk to 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 people who have had the experiences that you are going through and you think you must be the only one to to hear from you know a woman who's a couple of years ahead of you in the same kind of role is is very helpful. Yeah, no, I I like I'd love to see people um you know take part in that in that fight. And as I say, men and women together against the establishment rather than men versus women. Um, so. Okay, doke. On to the quick fire round, herbivore. So okay. Um, we've mentioned one book that you passed on, which was uh was Lean In. Do you have another book that you would recommend to listeners to to read? Uh, completely unrelated to um, my feminism and, and uh, crusade for, for that, <laughs> I have recently read uh, Sapiens and oh, yeah. I'm halfway through Homo Deus by right. Yuval Noah, Noah Harari. Um, they are just fabulous books and I'm, I'm really enjoying the second one, so uh, highly recommend. Yeah, they, they're on my list and there's actually there's one Aussie guy who's putting me under a lot of pressure to read Sapiens, so I must um, I must get into it, that. It's 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 a big book and it's you know I'm looking at it right this minute. A brief history of humankind, um, which sounds pretty daunting and challenging, but it's so well written. And yeah, it's, just, it's very very easy to get through and, and fascinating. And I've got it here in the next room, so I've got no excuse. Good. Um, a quote that you live by or that has inspired you over time going to disappoint you here. I'm not really a quote person. Um, but I did hear something very recently, so maybe it's not quite what you're after, but that has stuck with me uh, in relation to the struggles of kind of being your own boss or, or self-managing um, what you do work-wise. 
Uh, and it was just that when when that person has a problem that they're really stuck on um, and that they kind of can't see a way through, they actually think to themselves, well, what advice would I give to a friend with the same problem? Yeah. And usually they know the answer. Um, we're just quite often blinded by our own uh, struggles or insecurities. So I thought that was I, uh, I whipped out my phone and, and wrote that down. Very funny you say that. Coincidentally, I've started thinking in those terms just organically in the last couple of, probably the last month with a couple of decisions. What would I just uh, yeah. prescribe to a friend here? And you think so much more clearly and objectively. Well, and you just, it's so often full of advice for other people that you can't see to give yourself. Yeah, yeah, that's very effective and very coincidental. Um, inspiring person you know. I'm going to say my nonna, which is my Italian grandmother. Yeah. Um, it sounds quite lame, but she's, uh, she's 90 years old and came from a small village in Sardinia. Uh, I think she finished school when she was 10 years old uh, because that's what girls did back then. Um, but she is just so uh, so intuitive and so um, willing to give any problem a try. She'll try and she'll see something. And that needs fixing and she'll work out a way or she'll see something on TV and she'll go and figure out how to do it herself. And, um, I think that's quite inspiring. Yeah. That, you know, she says to me, if I had, if I had my life again, I, I, you know, desperately wish I could go to university and, you know, she would have wowed us all, I'm sure. Yeah. Huh. That's powerful. Um, inspiring person so, you don't know. That's, <laughs> um, I'm going for kind of a, cliche here but I'd really like to meet Obama okay so me too but no I won't allow it someone else <laughs> everyone says Obama uh, it's always, it's always Obama and Musk Obama's my number one but um, not allowed okay I'll come back um, to you well then I probably probably would like to talk to Cheryl Sandberg okay that's good very good yeah she would be very um, good to talk to certainly I I mean interesting timing with what's what's been going on with uh facebook and mm. certainly i think we'd ideologically be very different but in terms of you know probably probably almost any kind of senior woman who's fought her way uh through all those uh struggles I'd yeah be interested to talk to yeah no that's that's a great one <laughs> well recovered um a change <laughs> <laughs> a change you wish to see in the world uh when i think about this I, I find I find the world and the problems with it just completely overwhelming. So um, I think I'm going to have to uh, think local and stick to the fight that I'm kind of going through at the moment and passionate about, which is, you know, I want to see more women in, in trading and finance and tech and yeah. see if we can kind of improve things for, for all of us. No, very good. Very there good are far more important global issues, I know, than that. But no, no, but it's very good to... If, try you know. and change what I can. <laughs> If everyone says climate, that's like it's the same thing as the Obama thing. You, I want to hear different original answers, so that's very good. Um, something you wish you did in uni? More statistics. Now, that sounds very, very lame, but I've even got an exclamation mark next to my note on that. It's <laughs> <laughs> like more statistics because you just need them so, so often in finance and um, it's, it's something that I wish I had better skills at. Yeah. Well, as the world... Boring as that sounds. <laughs> no, well, as the world becomes more data-driven, being able to understand, translate, compile, you know, paint a picture with, with, it, with that... It's only, it's only going to get more important. Yeah, exactly. And um, so that makes total sense. Um, something you wish you did as a grad? Uh, 
worried less. I worried far too much. Right. It's going to be fine. Um, yeah, agreed. In, enjoy it. It's going to be fine. Uh, lesson you have learned in work? Um, life is really long and your career is going to be really long and you probably won't just have one. So take a risk and try something that you're passionate about or that you think might be the, the, the right thing. Don't stay with just the safe option because you think, you know, you've, you've got to stick to this career path you've mapped out for yourself. You're probably going to have three or four. We're living so much longer. Yeah, couldn't agree more. Actually, I saw an interview with Jim Carrey recently, the comedian. Someone said, why did you become a comedian? He said, well, here's why. My dad always wanted to be a comedian. And instead, he played it safe and was an accountant. And so I decided I was going to be an accountant. But then I saw my dad get fired as an accountant and fail as an accountant. And it was then that I decided to be a comedian because I realized that you can fail at what you really want to do or you can fail also at something you just don't want to do at all. And that's a double screw-up. And so he said, exactly. he said, look, if I'm going to fail at something, I'm going to fail at being a comedian. And off he went and, you know, didn't fail. Um, Absolutely. I mean, you, you and I spoke, spoke about this at great length when I was making this decision to, to make this leap of faith to, to, to start my own, uh, my own business, really. And, you know, I, I couldn't be happier that I did. I think w- we both said at the time, you know, if you if you don't do this, you'll die wondering. You'll, yeah, exactly. You'll re- regret not not trying, even if you fail. Yeah, there's a quote for you. Actually, don't die wondering. I love that. Um. So there yeah, I I love that idea. And well, I guess that that could possibly be. I was going to say, what's your life lesson as well? Um. But that might. Um. Double I think up. on that same sort of theme, work is not who you are. I I spent. 10 years essentially in the same job, not just the same company. Um, And, you know, certainly that job grew into lots of different things, but it was within the same team. And I was quite worried. I had created this persona for myself as, you know, a Macquarie banker who wears business suits, blah, blah, blah. And um, I was quite worried as to what I'd find out when I stepped out of that office and, and took three months holiday and then had to start something from scratch without the safety net. And, Mm. um, turns out it's okay it's work is not everything that you are yeah no love that okie doke well thank you very much for coming on that was brilliant and i love that we've um kind of introduced this this uh issue of women and work into the the i don't know the grad life medium as it were because it is very important and i'd love to see grad life be a force for or a platform that people can come and, and help change it um, so thank you My very pleasure. much thank you for your time thank I'm you for glad your we've introduced it as well yeah absolutely um, best of luck at Epoch and uh, thank you thank you